So my first week of seminary was a doozy. One of my professors called me into her office and she sat me down. I was sitting across the desk from her and she handed in a paper that I had turned in earlier that week, first assignment I had turned in. And in a big, bright red letter at the top was a huge D. And this professor looked at me and she said, I don't think you belong here. I don't think you deserve to be here. I don't think you're going to make it to graduation. I said, Dr. Parks, I, I, this is my first week. I, I know it's a bad paper, but I promise I'm going to study hard. I'm going to learn more. I promise I can do better. She said, it's, it's not really about the paper. What I'm worried about is I'm looking at the five of you. See, at Beeson, it was a very small school, so each incoming class had about 30 students. Very small school. And, and these incoming students, they would come from all over the country, even some from all over the world. But there were five of us that all came from the same small church just 60 miles down the road in Tuscaloosa. And so she looked at me and she said, with people from all over the world, I'm looking at the five of you from this little church and I think you are the one that is not going to make it. Three and a half years later, as I was wearing my cap and gown and holding my diploma, the same professor came up and hugged me and she told me that she loved me and, and that she was proud of me. So she was wrong about me, but she wasn't wrong about one of us. One of us didn't make it. It's not that we didn't just make it through school, but after one year, one of us dropped out and he renounced the faith entirely. He is now an, uh, active and, and practicing homosexual and claims in no way to be a Christian. He rejects every single thing about the Lord. This is a book that I read in seminary. It's called Dangerous Calling. It's written by a guy named Paul Tripp. Maybe some of you have heard of him. And it's a book all about how to persevere in the ministry and just identify some of the dangers and the pitfalls that come along with pastoral ministry. And so he talks a lot about how pastors tend to make ministry their identity, that however the church is doing, if it's doing great, the pastor thinks God loves him. If the church is doing well, then you know, then the pastor's life is just in ruins. Or he, he talks about how you can just spend so much time thinking and talking about God that the divine becomes ordinary and commonplace and you end up getting bored with God. And so he just, he kind of identifies some of these pitfalls and, and gives some really helpful, practical ways to, to not lose your awe and your wonder of God so that you will persevere all the way to the end and have a long and faithful ministry. If you open the first couple of pages there are five endorsements of the book and these endorsements they read you know this book is good in the same way that heart surgery is good it's painful and scary and as you read it you will be tempted to run away from the truth it contains but it just might save your life another one says if you've been in ministry for 20 minutes or 20 years I commend this book to you 
Be prepared for the change God will make in your heart, life, and ministry. So this book has five blurbs. Five people wrote recommendations of this book. This book came out in 2012. And since 2012, only two of those five are still in ministry. In seven years, 60% have dropped out. One of them, turns out, was having multiple affairs with his, with his wife. One was stealing money and was embezzling from the church. One, this is the most wild thing I've ever heard from a pastor. He several times tried to hire a hitman to murder one of his own family members. He even offered to help dispose of the body. And so at first, when I started hearing these stories about pastors falling out of ministry, my, my first response was shock. I think, no, there, there's no way. Like, I've read his books. I've, I've heard him preach. I've learned so much from him. There, there's absolutely no way that can be true. And then as you hear more stories and more stories, that shock turns to anger. And you think, how can you be so selfish? Do you not know how many people you are hurting? Just stop it. And then once you hear more stories and more stories and more stories, and especially when those stories start to involve people that you know, people that you've done ministry with, you have locked arms with, people who, who you have stood side by side with, when you hear those stories about them, then the emotion turns from anger to fear. You become fearful. And you get scared because you realize that you doubt any of those men intended to ruin their lives or to ruin the lives of the people around them. Nobody at the altar on their wedding day plans on having an affair. Nobody plans on wanting to kill one of their own family members. And it makes me scared because I don't plan on doing any of those things either. Here I am at the wise old age of 27 years old. I've been married for two years and six days. I'm heading into a position of leadership and pastoral ministry at Redemption Castle Rock, and I don't plan on ruining my life or the lives of the people around me. But they didn't either. They looked just like me, and now look at where they are. It was their giftedness that brought them recognition and fame, and eventually their platform outpaced their character. And when they didn't have the character to sustain them, their lives fell apart. And it's not just celebrity Christians who do this. They're just the ones that get the publicity and recognized for it. But we hear of people falling away from the faith all the time. Mark asked this question last week. He said, what is the best indicator in somebody's life right now that they are going to be walking with the Lord in five years? And 
he said that basically it's their commitment to the local church. Are they being fed from the word? Are they serving? Are they in a healthy, godly community? Because once you get too big for your britches and you walk away from the ordinary means of God's grace, the church, then really it is only a matter of time until you walk away from the faith altogether. And it doesn't just have to be in the church or spiritual, but think about it in your own professional lives. You know, have you ever had, you know, a man or a woman come into work who they are the new hotshot? They're, they're gifted off the charts, they're charismatic, everybody loves them, and they just start rising up through the ranks, getting the promotions quicker than you did. They are on the upswing. Well, as they get into positions of higher and higher authority and power and influence, if they do not have the character to back it up, they can wreak havoc just at work and in the rest of their lives. And I have to admit that as I look around the room right now, I'm impressed. By all worldly standards, you are an impressive bunch. I see doctors and lawyers Educators, architects, engineers, like by all worldly standards, this is an impressive bunch. Your, your competencies and your abilities are off the charts, much higher than normal people. And just from my brief time in the real world or any sort of professional world, I think any time that someone is unusually gifted at something, they tend to rely on that giftedness and that competency to get them through rather than on their character. So I'm, I'm just afraid for myself and for a lot of people in this room that we are set up to fail. We are going through life thinking that our skill is going to sustain us. So this is a question that I ask myself a lot and I'm going to ask you. What makes you think that you are going to finish in the faith? What makes you think that you are going to wake up tomorrow, 10 years from now, or on your very last day, and you are still going to be confessing that Christ is Lord? That's what I want to talk about today. My soul needs it. Maybe some of yours need it too. So our passage for this morning is Acts 18, 24 through the end of the chapter. Jen read it for us. And what we see here is we see one of these unusually gifted people. We see Apollos. He was one of the very first celebrity preachers. He was the new hotshot. If you read through the book of Corinthians, like he was so good that people were actually comparing him to Paul. You know, yeah, you follow Paul, but I follow Apollos. And we learn a lot about Apollos just in, in the descriptions of him here. We know that he was a native of Alexandria. You heard of the famous libraries at Alexandria? He had studied there. He was incredibly well-educated. He knew more than anybody. Then we read that he was an eloquent man, that he could captivate a room, he could spin a story, he could have you hanging on, he could, sitting on the edge of your seat, hanging on every word, he could have you laughing one minute and crying the next. 
So in addition with being uh, educated and eloquent and being able to command and captivate a room, we also read that he was competent in the scriptures and that he was instructed in the way of the Lord. So if you can let me use a little southern phrase, like by golly, Johnny could preach. He had all these giftings. Every sermon from Apollos was a home run. Every illustration, every joke, every application, he could take the high truths of God and explain it in a very clear and accessible way. He understood the human condition. He could pick apart the soul and apply the gospel truth to it and call people to repentance. Every single sermon was an A+. But I've seen this movie a few times. Yeah, he's gifted. More gifted than I will ever be. He's the, the man or woman that comes into work and you know you are outmatched. But if you've seen the movie enough times, if I were a betting man, because I know that as people get into higher and higher positions of authority, if they don't have the characters to sustain them, they're going to fall. If I were a betting man, I would put all of my chips on seeing Apollos fall out of the ministry within 10 years. That's what I would bet. But let's keep reading. Let's see if he's got the character necessary to uphold all of that skill and all of that ability. Verse 26, we read that he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. So this is where Apollos' character is being put to the test. Because he, he very easily could have ignored and he could have mocked Priscilla and Aquila. He said, look, I've been educated in Alexandria. I'm the one filling up thousands of seats. People are coming to hear me. Who are you? Who are these transplants from Rome? You don't even belong here. You don't have any experience. Why, why don't you just sit down and leave the big boy ministry to the professionals like me. That's what he could have done. But instead we see that by the kind and merciful grace of God, that is not what happened. He was mature and humble enough to realize that there was still more that he needed to learn. Yes, he was competent, but he could still be instructed, even from these pilgrims and transplants like Priscilla and Aquila. And the more that I think about Apollos, the, the less I care about how gifted he was and the more I'm impressed with how much more concerned he was with building and forming his own character than he was with building out his own platform. Since becoming a, an elder here at Redemption Parker and moving towards Redemption Castle Rock, I've been thinking a lot about the pastoral qualifications that Paul lays out in 1 Timothy 3. And I've shared these before, but I think it bears repeating. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives 14 qualifications for someone who is going to be in the ministry. 14, and only one of them has anything to do with any kind of skill or competency or ability. They must be able to teach. But 13 of the 14, the overwhelming majority are all about character must be above reproach sober-minded self-controlled respectable hospitable gentle not quarrelsome on and on and on and on 
And I gotta be honest, on most days, if I had the option of somebody saying, yeah, Matthew, that boy can preach, or somebody saying, you know, Matthew's really hospitable. He is really good at opening his home and making me feel welcome when I'm around him. Most days, I would pick being recognized for what I can do rather than who I am in Christ. It's just a, a prideful part of me that I have to kill. I have to kill the desire to be known for my ability than for my Christ-likeness. And, and in thinking through these pastoral qualifications, I think the most extraordinary thing about the pastoral qualifications is how absolutely unextraordinary they are. They are very, very ordinary things. If you remove the qualification able to teach from that list, then all of those character attributes, those apply to all Christians. The entire Bible, you can find commands for Christians to pursue gentleness and hospitality, to be self-controlled and gentle. If you remove the ability to teach, those commands and qualifications are given to all Christians throughout the Bible, meaning that for all of us, God is more concerned with our spiritual formation in Christ and in building up our character. And this call to pursue building your character more than you work to pursue your platform applies to everyone. Think about King David. As a little boy, King David was anointed as the king over all of Israel. And so did God march David right up to Jerusalem, plot him on the throne, and have him start ruling as a little boy? Nope. He was anointed as king, and he was sent back out into the fields to tend to some, to some sheep. There was some character building. There was some spiritual formation. God needed to work on David's heart for decades until David was ready for that responsibility. Think about the Apostle Paul. We looked at his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road a few weeks ago where he got knocked off his horse and he was blinded and, and, and Christ was just beautifully and sovereignly calling Paul to himself. And I, I think usually we think that right after that moment, as soon as he regained his sight, Paul picked up his pen, wrote most of the New Testament and went out on his missionary journeys. When really what Galatians tells us is that after his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road that Paul went away to Arabia for 14 years to study. Paul, the former Pharisee, had the entire Old Testament law memorized. He looked himself in the mirror and he said, I'm not ready yet. God has to do some work on my heart. Think about Jesus, God himself. He was on this earth for 33 years. He was a preacher for three years. And he was a day laborer in backwoods Bethlehem for 30 of them. Just learning a trade from his father. No recognition, no fame. Just waking up every day, nine to five, learning how to grow in who God had called him to be meaning that God himself has embraced this model of character building and doing spiritual development in a very slow, boring, 
ordinary ways. And this is because God is so much more concerned with your formation in Christ than he is concerned with your ability to do anything for Christ. And God is willing to take the time to make sure you go through that process. One of the reasons I'm speaking about this is I think our culture, and I think the church reflects us about our culture, we are obsessed with the new and the shiny and the get holy quick scheme. We are obsessed with getting so focused on a gifting or something that is unusual that we don't see the danger of those things and we ignore how God has wired us and how God usually works in us. If this sounds a lot like Mark's sermon from last week, it's because it is. This is the exact same sermon just in my own words. That is how important the ordinary means of grace uh, are to us. How does God accomplish these extraordinary things? How is God going to ensure that your faith is going to be sustained until your last breath? He's going to do it through the ordinary means of grace, which is a crockpot kind of work that takes years and decades and a lifetime. Notice Priscilla and Aquila didn't wake up one day being able to go toe-to-toe with Apollos and correct him on his doctrine. If you remember from last week, they had just spent years living and working and learning with Paul of all people. They had done the work ahead of time. So so maybe ask yourself, where do you want to end up? How do you think God wants to use you and to use your life? If you think he's calling you to eventually get married, that's great. But don't spend all of your time and energy looking on finding the one. Instead, focus your time and energy on becoming the one. Work on your character. Work on your Christ-likeness. Are you becoming the kind of person that you would want to marry? You have to do that work beforehand. So don't worry about finding the one. Worry about becoming the one. You want to be a missionary overseas one day. That's, that's great. But hopping on a plane and crossing a geographic boundary is not going to prepare you for missions work. Are you sharing the gospel with your neighbors? Are you seeking the internationals who are here in our country? Are you going just 10 minutes down the road to share the gospel? If you wait till you get off the plane in another country, aviation isn't going to make you a missionary. You have to already be doing it here. If you want to be a leader in your company or a leader in the church, that's great. We we have to learn how to do the things that nobody recognizes. If you want to be a leader, then learn how to be a good follower. Learn how to do the the formation work that that, that Christ, he he gets rid of your pride and you don't mind serving in the kids' room or cleaning the toilets or doing the job that nobody else wants to do. Those are the things that make a great leader, those who are committed to their formation in Christ. If you neglect those things, When you finally do reach your new position of power and authority, then that new position will consume you and you will fail. So along with focusing on character and growing in Christ-likeness, I see a a second 
Another common, ordinary means of grace that God has given us in this passage. We see that Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside and they corrected him. So along with having the character that was humble and mature enough to receive correction, Apollos had also placed himself in a community that was able to hold him accountable. He wasn't out there doing ministry all on his own. He wasn't out on an island. That's, that's probably the biggest mistake that especially like celebrity Christians make. They just get so famous, they think, I don't need any more accountability. My giftedness is going to be able to sustain me. And so they, they don't allow anyone to correct them or ask them about anything. And it's not just celebrities, it's us too. Have you ever, you know, moved to, you got a, a new job, so you moved to another city. And things are just really, really, really busy. And so you mean to get plugged into a church, but I'm just so focused on, on the job and the house and the kids that, you know, it's actually been two or three years in, until we've gone. And, and you've removed yourself from any kind of community or someone who can hold you accountable. For me, growing up, uh, sports was the thing that dominated everything. And so you could track my spiritual growth and development simply by looking at my basketball schedule. If it was basketball season, I wasn't in the church. Nobody knew me for six to eight months of the year. And it is just a very dangerous place to be when you have no accountability, no input, no teaching, no community. When you remove yourself from the church and from God's ordinary means of grace, it's like driving a Maserati up a really windy, hilly uh, mountain cliff where you can just fall off the side at any moment. Yeah, you're going to look awesome for two minutes. And then you are going to fall. I I've preached on this passage before, but what has been, I guess, an anchor for my soul for a long time has been Luke 22, where Jesus prays for Peter right before Peter betrays him. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And catch this last line. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. When you return, strengthen the brothers. Speaking on that passage, one pastor said this. He says, sometimes God will deal with you directly. Strength, strengthening your faith alone in the wee hours of the morning, just like he did with Peter, who was one of the 11 disciples. But most of the time, we might even say 10 11ths of the time, God is going to keep you, hold you, and strengthen your faith through another person. So yes, God did a miraculous thing in sustaining and upholding Peter's faith. But then he told Peter, when you return to the other 10, it is now your job and your responsibility to hold them accountable and to encourage them and to strengthen their faith. And so usually we are one of those 10. And God is going to send us a Simon Peter who is ahead of us in the trial. And that person can bring the words of grace, strength, and faith that we need to hear in order to keep our faith intact. 
I would go so far to say that perseverance in the faith is a community project. It takes all of us encouraging and strengthening and spurring one another on. So if you ever wonder why we emphasize gospel communities and church membership so much, it's because we know that the safest place for us to be and one of the best ways to ensure that we will finish in the faith is to place ourselves in a community who is committed to seeing us finish well. Gospel communities and, and church membership, they are a lot of things. But at bottom, they're just saying, I can't do this on my own. I need help. I am in desperate need for help. Will you help me? Will you join hands with me? Will you lock arms with me? Will you commit with me to get to the finish line together? I, I love the, also just the first part of Jesus' prayer. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So along with the strength and the support that we get from each other, have you ever considered what Jesus is doing right now? Hebrews 7 says that Jesus forever lives to make intercessions for those whom he loves. So what is Jesus doing right now? He is praying for you. He is praying for your faith. He is praying that your faith would endure to the end and that it will be sustained. And we can have confidence that for those who are in Christ, Jesus is going to hold us fast and get us to the end. John 10, Jesus said, he is the good shepherd and he will not lose one of his sheep. Philippians 1, Paul says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end. Paul said in Romans 8, I think these might be the most comforting words in all of scripture. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul gives the most extensive list of dangers to our faith that I have ever heard. He goes to the limits of human language and he says nothing on that list is going to be able to separate you from Christ. Jesus died for you. You cost God too much for him to lose you now. He paid his own blood for you. He loves you and he is going to keep you to the end. So to close, I want to prepare us for our time of response and we are going to sing, if you know me at all, you already know what I'm going to say, we are going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast. This, uh, this is the song that Lauren and I sang at our wedding and I know everybody's engagement story and their process of working up to getting married is different, but uh, we did not sprint with our heads held high through the finish line. We limped and we crawled on our hands and knees to the altar.
And, and this song has really just become a daily and a weekly prayer for us. We, we have the lyrics hanging in our kitchen and two years and six days later, I think we would both say that we now know and realize that we are in even more desperate need of God's grace than we were back then. I, I tell Lauren probably once a month, sing this at my funeral. It was by the calling grace of God that I started and it is going to be by the keeping grace of God that I finish. So sing about that. One pastor, former pastor now, he's 73 years old. And he said this. He said, more than anything else, I love singing, he will hold me fast because I'm old and I need to be held on to until I am dead. I once thought walking with the Lord for 40 years would give you 40 years of trajectory to secure your last five. But being 73, I now know that it doesn't work like that. I am as vulnerable today to dullness and worldliness and temptation as I ever was. And my only hope is the keeping and the sustaining power of Christ and his prayers. That's what I want us to walk away knowing this week. I want you to walk away knowing how desperately in need of God's grace you are. If he removed his grace for you from one moment, you'd fall away by the time you reached the door. Left our own devices, we would destroy ourselves. But because of who Christ is, because of the gift that he has given to us in each other, in the church, because of the spirit working in us to conform us more into the image of Christ, and because just like Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus is praying for you right now. He's going to be praying for you tonight when you fall asleep and tomorrow when you wake up and as you go throughout your week, Jesus is praying for you that your faith will not fail. He will not lose his sheep. You are his and he will get you to the end. So let's just pray to the Lord. God, we are so much weaker and more fickle than we even realize. God, this is a dangerous prayer, but would you show us how weak and fickle and how much danger we are in? Would you show us what would happen to us if you took away your, your, your hand from us? Simply so that we could Rejoice and magnify you in knowing that you never will do that. Lord, we praise you because you will not lose one of your sheep. You know the number of hairs on our head. You know us and you call us by name and you will keep us. Lord, by your spirit, would you, would you press that into our hearts right now? that we are secure in Christ and that you will never let us go. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.